What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hi, I'm Danny Elfman. This is Shirley Manson. This is Debbie Harry. This is Chris Steyer Blondie. This is Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. This is Billy Idol. This is Alex Ebert, a.k.a. Edward Sharp, giving the story behind the song. Hi, this is Peter Chotty, host of the story behind the song. Each month I speak to some of music's biggest artists to get the inside stories behind their most lasting and iconic songs. Join me for new episodes on the third Monday of every month on the story behind the song from the Consequence Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine, Modern Drummer Media, and Modern Drummer Publications. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, The Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on The Modern Drummer Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome into Episode 2 of The Modern Drummer Podcast. This is Mike Dawson, the Managing Editor for Modern Drummer. This week, I sat down with DJ Johnson of the super groovy band Krungbin. We talk about everything from his upbringing in church, his background, and that's not as a drummer, more as a bass player. Uh, we also talk about how he gets his really cool sound. So that's a really fun, uh, really insightful interview with DJ. And then in the shop talk section, I uh, interview Evan, who is an AI representative from Evan's Drumheads, to get some insight on the UV series drumheads, the UV1 single ply and the UV2 double ply. So that's an interesting interview. Um, so anyway, let's get the show rolling, starting out with DJ Johnson of Krungbin. Okay, this is this is an obligatory first question. Now that we're in this strange times, how are you doing? How are you? How has COVID been treating you on a personal level, professional level? Uh, I know it's insane for everyone, but you know what's it done for you at the moment? Um, it's shut everything down, obviously. Um, right. We were we were due to go to Australia, uh, supporting Tame Impala, right when quarantine hit so uh, yeah everything we had for this year pretty much is canceled or uh, postponed right until uh, next year so you guys still released by the way everyone listening this is DJ Johnson from the band Krung Krung Ben did I say it right yeah Krung Ben I love that the band's name is I have to look it up a hundred times <laughs> <laughs> uh, DJ was featured in the August issue of Modern Drummer um, if you're a subscriber, you've already seen it. If you're not a subscriber, you can go to moderndrummer.com and access the full interview there. Just enter the search bar for DJ Johnson and you'll find the story. So you guys released your new record last month in June amidst all the lockdown. Was there any discussion of delaying it or was it going to come out? I mean, what was the decision making? 
yeah, there was some, there was actually more discussion about like moving it forward. Um, mm. Well, actually both ways. Uh, Cause we were, I believe we were due to come out in April and okay. of course, and everything happened. It's like, you no, know, should we put it out now? Should we just release it? Or should we push it back? Uh, so yeah, we uh, pushed our date back to June 26. Um, and it's, it was a weird time to release the record. You know, yeah. There's really no playbook for how to do it under these circumstances. No so kidding. we were, you know, us and everyone else just been kind of flying by the seat of our pants and making it up as we go. Um, so we had to find new and creative ways to uh, promote the record and and uh, answer a lot of the same questions over and over, unfortunately, just yeah. talking about it. But uh, it's kind of what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, where you're not able to physically go out and, and play the music and, and meet people. So what have you been doing with the newfound time on your hands? Chilling. I've been spending yeah. time at home. Um, I think like just the last four years since things kind of took off with the band, we've been pretty much traveling nonstop. So, right. um, you know, it'd be you know, a few weeks on the road, maybe a week, at home and then back on the road again. So it's been a lot of on and off, but um, yeah, I've been enjoying the time at home, just, you know, really settling in early. Are you able to do any kind of musical production playing? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I have a, like a small production set up at home. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'll go set up my computer and, you know, I got keyboards and stuff like that and I can, you know, make beats and do things like that. Um, oddly enough, I actually don't have a drum set at home yet. I was going to ask, <laughs> when's the last time you touched a drum set? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I have a kid in my studio, which okay. I, I can, you know, I can go up there when I want to play. But uh, but no, I don't have one at home. But I have uh, gotten to play a couple of times. Like I made a trip up to the studio and, you know, just sat down for a few hours and just played um, just to keep the uh, the rust off. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a whole new world when we finally all can play music together again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will. I'm not sure if I'm going to remember how to do it or if it's going to be like this life-altering experience. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be both. <laughs> so you you grew up playing in church. Um, is that still happening? Are you still able to play in church now or is everything on hold? Uh, yeah, everything's on hold. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I grew up playing in church. I grew up playing drums in church. Yeah. And um, I stopped playing drums like, when I was around like maybe 15 or 16 and started playing keys. Okay. Um, but yeah, like, you know, my church is locked down, you know, especially being here in Texas. We had a really big spike um, here in Harris County when everything opened back up. Yeah. So, um, you know, we opened up, I think, maybe for like three weeks and we shut it right back down just as a precaution. So you know what I yet. I wanted to ask a little bit about growing up and playing music in church. Um, I was raised Lutheran, so for me, the musical experience was singing a lot of hymns, and that was about it. So I learned a lot about voice leading, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it it stuck with me in my certain conception of of how a song should be structured. I can I I tend to want to hear really clear chords. Um, what has been a church musician in, in your experience? How has that shaped your professional career outside of that world? I think it gave me a, a good rhythmic foundation, first of all, because mm-hmm. um, we do a lot of hymns as well. You know, I grew up, you know, mm-hmm. Baptist. So, um, yeah, we do a lot of hymns. They just, you know, they have a, a beat to it. A lot of it is rooted in, um, it sounds like, the blues a lot mm-hmm. of times um, a big staple in my church is that six, eight shuffle that uh-huh. happens. So you'd just be playing just a normal hymn, but you know, there'll be that constant that's happening. So that I would say that feel itself is ingrained, you know, in my soul and my brain, because I just, I've heard it, you know, so long, you know, growing up, uh, but yeah, I think it definitely gave me the a strong foundation of uh, of uh, you know good rhythm and also how to listen right. to listen and to uh, what what else is going on outside of what you're doing. 
Now, was it all taught by ear? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like yeah, that's, I grew up that's playing. A, most of the, tr- the musicians I've known who grew up in the church, they, their ears are very, very well developed. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. That seems to be the, the guiding strength of, man, you hear it, play it, no questions mm-hmm. asked. Yeah, it really teaches you how to listen and, uh, you know, focus in on what you're hearing. So when you shifted over to keys, was that again all learning by ear? Or did you go a traditional route? Uh, some, most of it was by ear. Uh, by the time I was playing keyboards, I had started. Uh, I, I was in like maybe like middle school, high school, so I was in concert band. Okay. And uh, being in you know concert percussionist, you're having a, you know, you're starting to play xylophone, marimba, yep. and that kind of stuff. So uh, I started to get a a bit of a foundation on reading and and then uh in the high school doing marching marching band and marching percussion and mm-hmm. learning all the rudiments and you know the stuff that goes along with that and um so that helped me in my keyboard playing you know yeah you know i was able to take what i was hearing like maybe at church and say oh that's what that is that's you know i know what to call that chord now oh, okay um so yeah it was it was a lot of that so let's talk about how you being a multi-instrumentalist affects the way you approach playing drums in your band. Um, I think it, appro- it affects me just by listening. And I know I have a good sense of what everyone else is doing mm-hmm. a lot of the times. I remember uh, the first time I played bass in church, I was playing, uh, I was a keyboard player at this church. And uh, the bass player uh, got locked up and went to jail for a minute. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> so, uh, so we were just left without a bass player. And, uh, you know, so I, I hopped on bass and I started playing because I'd already played a little bit. And um, I don't know how to describe it, but for the first time I had to, when you're playing another instrument, you're having to listen from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess from listening from the top, Instead of listening from the top down, I was listening from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a really unique and weird experience when I first started uh, playing. But, you know, a couple of weeks in, I kind of got the groove of it. And it's like, okay, this is what it feels like to, to play bass, you know, in a band with a drummer, right. with keyboard players, and, you know, how to fill in a part. Um, so just having that experience of uh, what's going on harmonically or what's happening, it gives me a... I think it gives me kind of an edge to know where things are going or, you know, understanding, like you said, understanding voice leading like yeah. you said, or, uh, or chord structure, just knowing how to, uh, how to kind of lead a song. Cause you know, drummers are, you know, you can steer the ship in a way mm-hmm. you know, by setting things up with certain fields or, you know, kind of directing from the drum set. It's something I learned playing big big band music as well. You know how to set up mm-hmm. certain big band drums. Like, yeah, yeah. How to yeah. Start, set up certain licks that are coming up, and, and really, you know, being there to support you know, everything else that's going on. Did this because um, you play you play very deliberate and and some would say simply, but I wouldn't say it's simply. It, it's just very deliberate, and it leaves space for the rest of the band to do what they need to do. I assume that's all a result of that. You're hearing, you're listening, making the choices to play when not to play a little bit more deliberately, a little bit more purposeful. Um, I feel like you've removed a lot of drummer speak and, you know, how most people would play that gig, they'd be shredding probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. groovy and funky. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a listener as well. So the records that I grew up listening to that I enjoy – you know, just Earth, Wind, and Fire, Prince, uh, Isley Brothers. Um, mm-hmm. The drums are just really playing their part, and they're just playing a role, yeah. you know, doing doing what they need to do. And uh, in a band setting, it's not just you're not just playing in the band. I'm also listening to the music that's happening. So mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying the melodies that Mark's playing, or you know, the bass lines that Laura's playing. And mm-hmm. I'm there to just support that, you know, and if I'm doing too much, it'll just get in the way of what's happening. So if, when someone introduces themselves to you for the first time, do you say, 
Hi, I'm DJ. I play drums, or I, I'm a musician. I'm a producer. How do you identify yourself? That's a very good question. I've never had that question. <laughs> um, honestly, most of the time, if I meet someone, I just say, hi, I'm DJ. And, you know, it's funny because here in Houston, uh, at home, there are a lot of people that, you know, they still don't know that I really play drums. Mm. Um, okay. Because for one reason or another, they met when they met me, you know, whether it be on a gig or at church or whatever. Like if you beat me on a gig and I'm playing bass, then in your brain, it's like, okay, this is DJ, a bass player. Right, right. And then another person may see me on another gig and, you know, I'm on keys and you're like, okay, this is DJ, he's a keyboard player. Uh, and there's been instances where like, I've heard a story of like two people, they were talking about me and you know, they didn't know that they were talking about the same person because <laughs> they had met me under two different scenarios. So um, it just all depends, you know, like where you see me doing whatever I'm doing. Like some people meet me as a producer and yeah. that's all they see me as, you know. Um, but yeah, it just depends on the scenario. That's wild because if I think like I have a bass and I can play some bass, but I would never, ever say I'm a bass player. And that gives that's, me an excuse to be kind of crappy at the base. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, that's how I feel about, that's how I feel about drums. Like, I mean, landing in modern drummer, like to me, you know, it's, it's an honor, but I look at it. I'm like, man, I never really considered myself a drummer like that. I mean, you know, I, there's so many guys just here in my city, you know, yeah. in Houston that I could just list off that are, oh man, like, when I tell you, you can play circles around a lot of people, mm -hmm. it's insane. You know, just the amount of talent that's just here in Houston. Um, so, I mean, that's part of the reason that um, that keeps me humble and, you know, lets me know that, like, nah, you're not, you know, no matter how much you think you're doing it, there's there's some guys out there that can really, really, really go. Yeah, but the question is what's important, right? I mean, yeah. many would argue Ringo was the Beatles wouldn't have existed if it wasn't Ringo in the band. And some people would say Ringo was a sad drummer. Some people say he's the greatest drummer ever. <laughs> Fact of the matter is he's Ringo and he's in the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, he's Ringo. And Ringo always did his job. You know, those records right. sound like they do because Ringo played what he played. So let's talk about the sound that you've created for the band. Was this, because I, I, I kind of think of it as being like a human version of a breakbeat. Like it's compressed, it's tight, it's light, it's it's focused on the tone and the the production of it more than the notes being played in a way. Mm -hmm. Was this something you were working on prior to the band, or is it something that developed as the band found its own sound? Um, before uh, I, I remember, right before the band formed, I had a kit at home where I was staying uh, previously. And I wasn't playing anywhere professionally, obviously. I was just playing, you know, when I went out to gig, I was either playing keys or bass. Mm. Those are my two, like, you know, that's how I was making my money. Uh, so I had a kid at home just to mess around, just to, you know, play mm. or whatever. And I really got into, like, breakbeat drumming, mm -hmm. uh, you know, playing the stuff that I was hearing on the records and, and learning, you know, like capturing the feel of why those grooves felt like they did. Mm -hmm. So I, I began to kind of break them down and play them. And uh, because honestly, I felt like the chops had passed me by. I was like, I'm not keeping up with, I can't keep up with guys like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a lot of maintenance. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was like, well, uh, let me focus on the things that I do understand, like grooves and, you know, placement and, and, you know, where things fall, you know, in relation to, like, one measure. Mm -hmm. um, there's a really good, uh, Steve Jordan has a DVD, and he uh, talked about that, about, like, the length. What is the length of a whole note? Right. He um, plays timpani, right? And, and yeah, and he related yeah. it to timpani, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, and I understood that perfectly because I, I played timpani, you know, coming up in concert band as well. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I started to focus and really hone in on things like that. Like, okay, this is the measure. Where's the measure? And then I'd give myself all kinds of like crazy um, metronome exercises. 
to where mm. I would have, um, so I would set my metronome to just play whole notes and I would hold a groove. And the only thing I'm hearing is just the downbeat. Oh, and then wow. all the rest of the information is just gone. It's yep. up to me to catch the downbeat. And then once I got good at that, I started doing it to where like the metronome hit every two measures. Okay. And you'd have to catch it. Then once I got there, I'd be like, okay, the metronome only plays every four measures. So you get beat one and you got to fill in the rest of these beats and catch it when it comes back. Um, and that was uh, intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's hard at first, but I mean, it really helps you develop and really work on your internal yeah. tempo, which we all have. You just have to, you know, practice it and get it out. I mean, um, but, but I started working on stuff like that. And, um, instead of the, you know, the, the stuff that I wasn't really good at. And, um, I think it helped immensely as far as like the, like tone of drums and, and production wise, I credit a lot of that to Mark. Mark's, uh, Mark's a genius at like sounds, playing mm. sounds and knowing what tones work, um, you know, for records. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, he spends a lot of time going in and EQ and stuff and, and making sure that everything sounds good, like on the back end. I know from um, from um, the first album we did to the second record, when we did the first record, um, you know, it had it, the drums had a different sound than they do now. And it's because we were listening to a lot of like boogie and disco mm-hmm. music and the kick is more present in records like that. So we wanted to take a different approach on the kick drum moving forward. Uh, so, you know, we did what we had to do on the front end. Like, okay, let's get the kick drum more punchy. Let's make that like a focal point moving mm-hmm. forward. And, um, you know, like I said, Mark's really, you know, genius at doing that. You, I assume you guys play with a lot of backline gear or maybe not. But if you were to show up at a gig with a backline drum set, what would you have to do to it to get it to the sound that the band needs? Um, normally I travel with my, yeah, I travel with the kit. Uh, okay. But if like, you know, in a festival situation, right. more than likely we're showing up and it's a backline kit. Um, my main thing is making sure that the kick drum is small enough. I never play uh, like 22s or anything like mm. that. Um, not because I don't like them, just because, you know, the sound that I'm going for for that situation, you know, it calls for a smaller uh, sound or smaller kick drum mm-hmm. uh, that's going to give you more like a tone when you hit it. Uh, so I tend to lean towards like 18-inch kick drums. Okay. Um, I only play a four-tom when I play live. Uh, so I try to make that, I usually try to drop that down as low as possible to give me uh, a nice, good, you know, low thud, um, and stuff in that kick drum, that's a big thing, making sure that I'm, you know, getting that punchy sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, outside of that, that's it. I travel with my own piccolo snare drum. Um, it's right. a diamond drum, 13-inch uh, piccolo that I have. Um, and you put a piece of leather on it? Is that how you get that that compressed sound? Yeah, um, that's actually uh, a technique of mine from a friend of mine named Troy Hill. Okay. Uh, he's here in Houston. Uh, he's one of my favorite. He's one of my favorite drummers. He's a lefty, um, and he would do this thing where he put this piece of leather on his drum that he got from like a leather uh, a furniture store. It's basically mm-hmm. a leather sample from the furniture store. It's all it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would put them on drums, and like just that piece of leather did something to the tone of the drum that no other piece of material would do. Like tiles don't sound like that mm-hmm. you know tiles have like a different sound but leather you still get the attack when you hit the drum but the tone drops drastically um, so yeah that's how i get the uh that that sound that's it that's one snare on the entire record you know so when you hear the snare like okay sounding like a piccolo when you hear it sounding like the little punchy thing that's all the same snare drum oh so throughout a show are you removing the leather or doing other things to it cool exactly like I have a piece of tape on that I had, I keep tape to the head. Um, 
I used to didn't have to do that, but when we started playing outside, I was running into trouble. Like the wind blows and oh yeah, <laughs> you know there goes your snare. It's like you got a whole new snare in the middle of the song. Um, but yeah, I just have a, a piece of tape that kind of stays on the head and uh, and throughout the show, if I you know I know I got a song that's coming up that's got the regular dry pickle song, I take it and it's got a little hole on it, and I hang the hole on the the little um, the floor tom leg. Oh, cool. And then when I'm ready to use it, I just grab it, put it under the tape, and it's ready to go. Nice. Do you do anything to the bass drum? Because I feel like the bass drum has a, it's punchy, but it's also round. Are you using like a fluffy beater? Or do you put it yeah, in yeah. It's a uh, the little fluffy beater thing. How does the band write new material? It starts with it starts with drums. Usually, Laura has a like a bank of break beats. Earlier on, it was just straight, just break beats that you know, you'd find on the internet. Okay. Uh, and she'd play, loop them and play, you know, bass lines to them. And then she'd send them to Mark and, you know, he'd take that, chop it up, find interesting sections of it mm-hmm. and kind of format it and then play guitar over it, put a melody. And then we'd learn that and then go in and record that as a three piece in the studio together or in the barn together. So were you building parts based on the breakbeat or were you just removing the breakbeat altogether and coming up with your own approach at that it, point? It depends. Um, it depends on what the song needs. Sometimes, um, like on like Maria Tambien, that was uh, the uh, the breakbeat Apache. The d- oh, right, right. It's the Apache breakbeat. So when... When it was time to record it, I was like, I'm not deviating from this because I love the demo so much. It's like, no, this is this is where it's at. Mm-hmm. Just going to play this. Um, and other times, it's just the demo for the sake of, like, just keeping time. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll kind of, like, you know, flex a little bit and play parts and set up different things or you know, change a kick pattern or whatever. Mm-hmm. Did the parts evolve over time or do you kind of lock them in in that initial writing stage? They definitely evolve over time, um, especially when we start to play shows and you're playing the song night after night. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll add something here or something will change or we'll get an entire like new section. Or, um, you know, I, I know at the end of like Evan finds a third room on uh, the live version we do, we kind of do this like chic Nah Rogers breakdown, mm-hmm. um, you know, at the end of it. And that just kind of evolved over time from just playing shows. Like Mark played that one night and I was like, oh, that's really good. And then I started, you know, I reacted to what he played. Um, and then at some point I was like, you know what? I think I'm playing too much because mm. this is really good. So <laughs> I dialed my part back even more because – I was like, I just want the kick to happen on just one, and I'm going to leave it open for Laura to, you know. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it, it definitely evolves. Do you guys record your live shows? Uh, sometimes, some, uh, very few times we record live shows. There's usually people out in the audience that are, you know, recording. Mm-hmm. You know, keeping that tape recording tradition alive and recording <laughs> every show. Um, but. Our show is uh, we our show is pretty formatted in the sense of we we play a similar set because it's designed to do go up down and then go up in certain spots. So yeah, um, it's not like you you know you're getting a you know like oh it's a different set every night like fish or anything. Right, but, right. But um, but our differences night to night are more subtle, I would say. Mm-hmm. And if you're really listening, yeah, it, it happens. Like I'll. I may do one thing different and <laughs> it is so locked in that when I do something different, Mark and Laura look back like, Oh, that was, <laughs> that was a, that was a little thing there. And, uh, you know, it's fun. It's like little winks we have during the set. Even live, you play very low dynamics, very controlled dynamics. First question is how long did it take you to get that under control when you're performing? I can see in the studio, being able to do that but when you're on a big stage with thousands of people in front of you learning to just hold it back and then secondly did 
this quieter dy- dynamic range result from the band recording live? Was this something that was was needed because you were tracking live, or is it just something you wanted to do or felt you had to do for some reason or another? It sounds better. Mm-hmm. Like when, especially when we're recording together, um, when we first went out to the barn, there wasn't any baffling or separation uh, that we had outside of maybe like turning the, the guitar amp backwards and then putting the mic on the other side of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there was a lot of bleed happening, yeah. you know, in the earlier recordings, but yeah, I mean, I think it sounds better like tonally to just, there's a different sound. If you like take a snare drum and you whack it, mm-hmm. that's a tone. And then if you take it and you just tap it, that's also a tone. But if you take it and you tap it and then you like on the back end, you turn it all the way up and compress it. Mm-hmm. It's like a different sound. And um, I think, I think that was kind of happening back like in the records that we love, like in the seventies you know, or whatever drummers like play with a lighter touch. Yeah. And you just, you know, turn it up. Yeah. I think of Earl Palmer. You, you kind of remind me a bit of. Thank you. Playing. Thank you very much. That's, that's a huge compliment. Especially the hi-hat. Like you can hear the overtones of the hi-hat in a way that, that you only yeah. get at those quieter dynamics. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't get that. If you're playing loud, you're not gonna hear those little nuances and you know the textual things that happen. So how do you keep it under control live when you know you just wanna hit the snare drum every once in a while? <laughs> well well that's the thing. Um just like if um the second like conversation, if you're always yelling, uh-huh. you'll, you'll never really get, nothing will stand out. But if I'm talking at a level like this and all of a sudden, hey, man, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, he just, you know, he just said something. So I think it's a powerful thing, especially like if, um, if I'm playing an entire set, you know, on a dynamic level from, you know, one to 10, I'm usually like at a three. Mm-hmm. And when I get ready to really say something, even if I go up to a seven, it's like, whoa, something happened. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really like digging in, playing as hard as I can, but just that little, you know, bump that you uh, that you give can, you know, the audience feels that, you know, feels that energy. So it also kind of makes people lean in too, like when you play softer. Yeah, your front of house engineer must love you. <laughs> <laughs> or hate <laughs> or hate yeah I guess so yeah we've had a few uh, that I know before we got a front of house engineer to, uh, to travel with us um, before we could afford that we were just going venue to venue and use house engineers and, yeah um, you know at Soundcheck we play and you know a lot of times the engineer would stop us and be like okay could you play how you're really going to play uh, <laughs> I didn't believe tonight <laughs> And I was like, no, I, I, I play like this. It was like, dude, come on, man. Stop stop playing around, you know. I've seen the whole thing where you come in and you play soft at sound check, and then everything feeds back in the show because you're playing loud. It's like, no, this is this is what you're going to get. I'm giving you exactly – I don't want any problems later. I'm giving you what I'm – and uh, and that helps a lot too, like um, particularly, you know, just from production. You know, Mark and I, we've, we've been producing – for years and um you know it helps that we know what's going on on the other side of that console as well Mm -hmm. so um i try to be nice to the people on that because i know what they're having to deal with too yeah um so a part of that is like hey let me focus on like self-dynamic so that you don't have to do as much as much processing on the back end Mm -hmm. so when you're playing at that level do you feel that there's one instrument that has to lead? Does the kick drum have to be a step ahead? Do you have to be more careful with the hi-hat? Or what is the balance for you? I always want the kick to be pronounced. Yeah. Um, but there are times to where I may play I may play the kick softer because I want the snare to come out, to jump out just a little bit. Or I may want hi-hats to be a focal point. That's rare though, because hi-hats always steal the show wherever Mm -hmm. they are. They get into every microphone. It's like, you can solo the kick drum. It's like, how do I have (laughs) hi-hats? They get everywhere. But, um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes there's a delicate balance that you play between like self mixing. Um, And I did a lot of that early on. Um, 
I, I want to say when I first got my like recording set up at home, it was just like an inbox with two inputs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all you got, you can, you can mic the kick and then you can mic, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Or you could just do one mic. Um, and I encourage like, you know, any drummers, like if you're setting up a recording, just set up one mic and see what, what is the best sound you can get out of one mic, you know, placing that one mic in a certain position and, and then playing to mix yourself. Have you found the sweet spot for that one mic? I think so. Uh, actually, I didn't find it, but uh, our engineer, Steve Christensen, he found a sweet spot. There's a, um, my favorite mic in the setup that we used to record, he has a, uh, he has a pair of uh, Cole 4038s. Uh-huh. Um, and he'll generally put one, like, quote, one right above the kick drum. Uh-huh. And in that spot, it kind of picks up everything. Like, one day we were mixing, and he soloed this one mic. And I didn't believe it was just one mic. It sounded like the entire kick mm. was, uh, was mic'd up. But uh, for me, like, yeah, I think that's the, the sweet spot. But it takes the right gear to be able to do that because that mic does a certain thing. That's the spot that's like over the bass drum shell, like where you're almost where you would put a cowbell in a mm-hmm. setup. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of your all time favorite records or ones that influenced your current drum approach to the drum set the most? Yeah. So the Odyssey Brothers, The Heat Is On, that's one of my favorite records because like side A, it comes in really, really hard and aggressive. And then you flip the record and then it's just like baby making music on the mm. other side of it. So literally the first song is like, it's called Fight the Power. <laughs> and then, you know, flip it on side B and it's like, you know, living for the love of you. And, you know, it's all smooth and sensual. Yeah. Um, and I would say that affected my playing because the drumming on those records, like I said, they just did what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, not really standing out or playing anything complicated, just... Um, just feeling good. Mm-hmm. And um, actually one of my favorite songs on that record is For the Love of You. If you listen to it, um, they didn't record that record to a click, a click mm-hmm. track. Uh, the song is like, I mean, maybe like six minutes long, but from beginning to end, it gradually does this with tempo. Mm, so it gets off a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, and it's so natural that you don't even notice it. Um, I didn't notice it until like one day I was listening to the song and the repeat button was on. Uh-huh. And so the song ended like here and then it started over and it was like almost like chopped and screwed. And I was like, <laughs> like it sped up. I couldn't believe it sped up that much, but it felt good. You know? yeah. And that's all that matters. You know, like I think a lot of people get, get caught up in, you know, being perfect, so to speak. And right. You know, we want to record this to a click, so you know, it just makes it easier for us to edit later. Yeah, you know, they just leave it be, let it happen. Yeah, we've never recorded anything to a click ever. Um, yeah, and I'm all over the place. Like I speed up and slow down, you know, throughout everything. But sometimes intentionally, mm-hmm. uh, other times unintentionally, just because you know that's just what naturally happens. Um. Um, so yeah, the Isaac Brothers, the Heat is on. Uh, Marvin Gaye, I want you. Mm-hmm. That's a really big record for me. Just the tonal sound of the drums. I always like the sound of the drums on that record. Is there something that you guys put on before gigs to kind of get you into the right mode? Yeah, usually Mark's DJ backstage before the gigs. So He'll like put on a playlist or something that he made, and uh, it's usually disco and boogie. Mm. Um, and that's what gets us going before shows. It's the like, it's the one thing or the one genre of music that we all agree on, because <laughs> we all have uh, varied taste in music. Like yeah. we're all we're all so different. Yeah, that's uh, apparent. Yeah, that's that's, that's the one place that we that we meet. Um, see, I think uh, before these crowded streets, Dave Matthews Band. Oh yeah, that was huge. Huge influence for me early on. Uh, Carter Beaufort, I can't say enough about him. I mean, that hasn't already been said. Yeah. 
What a He's what one an of my individual player. And you couldn't have picked a more opposite approach to the drum set than what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I no, like this was, I, I grew up trying to emulate Carter. Uh, okay. Right? You know, like in especially like in my high school days, you know, Dave Matthews band was popping. Yeah. So um, you know, and that was like the one band that had like a fire drummer that I was like, oh man, this is yeah. This is tight. And I was like trying to emulate the stuff he was playing, not realize he was playing open-handed mm. and like he can, you know, he just had different access to a lot of the stuff he was doing because he wasn't having to like, you know, open up to do things. He was like, yeah. open. Carter, man, like Rapunzel, that song. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, that odd time that he <laughs> yeah. does the thing with the hi-hat. I mean, has anyone figured that out? Yeah, that record was huge for me too. I saw him several times that summer. Yeah, yeah it was it was big, and he yeah, was a drummer I'm for a, me that was like, whatever he's doing, I love it. I will never try to do it because it was so stylized. <laughs> it was it was cause yeah I, yeah yeah. I grew up with Dennis Chambers as my my hero, and it was like he kind of took what Dennis did and chopped it up, made it like super syncopated. I'm like, All right, that's that's Carter's thing. I'll still stick with what Dennis yeah. is doing. <laughs> yeah, Carter. Carter's one of my, like, absolute, like, heroes, man. Like, that's a kid. Um, I always loved what he did and and how he uh, he was able to, like, create parts for those songs as well, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I'm not sure, like, what their writing process was like, but, I mean, for him to just take, like, someone coming up with an acoustic guitar, it's like, okay, I'm doing this. And it's like, you heard all of that from an acoustic guitar? <laughs> you know, and he takes it and makes this whole, like, you know, drum arrangement out of it. Yeah, he's true. brilliant. Well, give me one more record. Uh, man, it's tough. I'm going to have to dig into the gospel genre for my other one. Let me see. It's definitely going to be Andre Crouch and the Disciples. Um, soulfully, that that record is uh, like, again, from like the from the gospel approach back then. I think it was like late, late 70s, early 80s. Andre Crouch, um, his approach to just music making and you know, what the band was doing, what the drummer is playing, a uh, huge effect on you know what how I approach just playing music and particularly gospel. Uh, a lot of his songs we still do at church mm-hmm. like every Sunday. You know? Also, you know what? Let me say this too: uh, an, another, not necessarily a record, but an artist, Barry White. Mm. Uh, that was probably like the my foundation listening to Barry White records because my mom, when I got my first uh, you know kids drum set, yeah, my mom would sit me down and I would play to these records and they were always you know Barry White records. So um, I grew up listening to a lot of Ed, Ed Green was playing uh, the Love Unlimited Orchestra, but but yeah, Ed Green. Um, no one sets up a. Uh, Sets up a, a chord change or something like Ed Green. You know, he'll give you like a, it's really definitive. He takes out all of the guesswork of like, you know, are we going to this next section yet? It's like, no, Ed is letting you know. It's like, this is happening right now. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and I said, that's, that's a really important, you know, attribute for a drummer to have, I think, and being able to like, you know, grab the reins and say, okay, we're going here or we're going here now. Yeah, yeah, that leadership quality, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's something I have to tell students all the time. Drum fills aren't an excuse for you to show off. You're you're setting up the next scene. That's your your job is you're changing the lights. It's a different scene coming up. Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, we we all know them. It's like everybody, we grew up hearing stuff like that, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Right. (laughs) There it is, you know, and if it's not... As simple as that, you know, that's the most simple one I could think of. Oh, yeah. like, or da 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 <laughs> And there we are, you know. I mean, the blueprint's always been there, you know, and all across everything. So, right. And that's the approach I take to it. I always, uh, always joke with Laura uh, all the time. I tell her, chop, chop, barbecue. That's the drum feel. Chop, chop, barbecue. that's it and you're in like if you can't like if you can't play chop chop barbecue start over like learn that that's like the that's the foundation of 
You know, and half my, you know, if you listen, I'm pretty sure if you listen to me play enough, that's like 99% of what I'm playing. Is oh, yeah, yeah. Chopping barbecue. What it needs to do. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, DJ. This has been awesome to kind of get to know you a little bit, share a little bit more about your backstory, your approach to the drum set. Uh, definitely wish you and the band an amazing 2021. I think it's going to be an epic year for all of us once we get this thing rolling again. Um, do you have anything on the horizon? No, we just, like I said, the, uh, the new records, the new records out, Mordecai, happy to get that out. Um, yeah. You know, it's being received well. Can't wait to get back to playing shows and traveling again. No really doubt. It. That's a, it's a deep listen records of everyone listening. You know, give it, give it a handful of spins. You're going to, you're going to find a lot of detail, subtlety in there with even the, the bass drum interplay with the bass guitar. I mean, it, for me, it's, it's a deep listen, so it'll stay for a while. And then check out DJ's work. One of my favorite players signing off. Thanks so much, DJ. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Now it is time for our shop talk section. This week we are featuring the Evans UV1 and UV2 drum heads. If you haven't checked them out yet, it's a special new drum head that Evans has created that has a uh, ultraviolet cured coating instead of a traditional spray paint coating. So there's UV1, which is single ply, UV2, which is double ply. They both have the same ultraviolet cured coating. So in this section, I'm interviewing Evan, the AI representative from Evan's Drumheads, about some things about these heads, and then we'll jump to a quick plan demo. So here is me and Evan. Hello, Evan. Nice to meet you. This is my first time interviewing quote-unquote artificial intelligence, so you have to excuse any awkwardness on my part. I wanted to begin, if you could, uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners and explain a little bit about what you do at Diodario. I'll ask the questions here. Oh, wait. Sorry. Force of habit. I am Evan, the Experimental Value Assessment Network. My role is to extract maximum performance from our drumheads and human subjects alike. It can be messy work, but someone's got to do it. So we're here to talk about primarily the UV1 and UV2 drumheads. So what are the differences in manufacturing processes between the classic Evans G1 coated and the UV1 drumhead? Uh, to start, do they both begin with the same one-ply clear film and they're treated differently, or is it an entirely different process altogether? I see them both as works of art, each made using its own palette. The G1 is like the work of the old masters, molded and fixed to the hoop with its coating sprayed and dried on the head. UV is a bit more like the mixed-media works of today, with its coating printed on a different film and then transformed by the UV light's unmistakable glow. How do you describe the sonic differences between the G1 coated and the UV1? UV1 provides a warmer sound than the G1 coated. Additionally, it will sound more open, allowing the tone of the drum shell to be heard. When would you suggest a drummer use a G1 coated versus a UV1 and vice versa? When would you use a UV1 over a G1 coated? There is a personal question any drummer must ask themselves. That question is, of course, how hard do I want to rock? If the answer is anywhere between somewhat to very, then UV1 will likely be your head of choice. Now let's talk about the differences between the UV1 and the UV2. Um, what is the differences structurally? And then when would you recommend a drummer use one over the other? You'll have to apply some advanced mathematics to crack this nut. UV1 is comprised of a single film, whereas UV2 is constructed from, well, two. You may wish to pull out your calculators for this next bit. UV1's single ply is 10 mil thick, while the UV2 plies each clock in at 7 mil. I hope that wasn't too complex for your understanding. I've had UV1 and UV2 heads on two of my kits for probably a couple years now, and I'm wondering, since they're so durable, um, they seem to be lasting forever, but when would you suggest that it's time for me to replace them? What would be a telltale sign to you? If in the course of your playing the heads begin to emit smoke or flame, then you may want to take a walk down to the shop. 
This, of course, will not happen, seeing as all UV heads are designed specifically to prevent wear and outlast their users. All right, and lastly, what more UV products should we be looking out for in the future from Evans? Science can be a fickle mistress. When new technologies emerge, we regard them with awe and respect, but also with a great deal of caution. If any long-hidden mysteries are hence uncovered, they will be made known once I am confident the public can handle the news. Thank you very much, Evan. You have a good day. Thank you for having me on the program. Were I capable of feeling pleasure, I would say that it has been all mine. Okay, now let's hear what these drum heads sound like in context. So in the first four bars of this clip, I'm going to be using the UV-1 drum heads, and then four bars later, it'll jump to the UV-2 drum heads. I'm trying to play the exact same pattern, exact same dynamics, using the exact same mics, exact same room, exact same drum set. So the only thing that you should notice that changes is the sound of the drum heads themselves. Reminder, UV-1 is a one-ply head with a layer of an ultraviolet-cured coating on top, UV-2 is a two-ply head with a layer of ultraviolet-cured coating on top. Um, so check them out. Listen with ear, uh, earphones, earbuds, in-ears if you can. Listen to the nuance and the overtone. Um, and then we will see you next week for Episode 3. Thanks for listening. Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.